Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Always it's our pleasure and privilege to welcome you. And please stay with us for the next hour, because we are continuing to talk under this uh, topic, In the Crucible with Christ. Today we like to look a little bit more into dying like a seed. Let's welcome our panel. Jerry, it's good to have you with us. Yeah, nice to be with you again, Nick, and the panel members. Joe, thank you for uh, joining. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Len, it's also good to have you with us. Thank you for your welcome, and hello, listeners. Will, it's good to have you part of this today. Thank you, Nick. And not only part of the panel, but uh, thank you, Will, for um, preparing this uh, Bible study, and uh, you're going to facilitate today. Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. And Nick, welcome to you too. <laughs> You're always welcome, part. Jesus' picture of a kernel of wheat needing to die is a fascinating analogy of our submission to God's will. The seed, buried in the ground, dies to itself before it produces fruit. And in turn, the new grain is planted. And so the harvest is multiplied. In fact, the farmer preserves his grain, if you think about it, by casting it away. And so in human life, to give is to live. And the life that is ultimately preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who, for Christ's sake, sacrifice their life in this world will keep it into life eternal. Nature has some wonderful lessons to teach us, but I guess first we should pray. Nick, would you pray for us, please? Sure. Heavenly Father, we come before you in these moments because we want to thank you for the great God you are, for uh, the almighty God you are, and you are worthy of all praises and honor and glory. And we want through this study also to praise your name because we want to study from the Bible and to be able to share with one another and with everyone who's listening today. Please uh, bless our hearts and uh, minds to receive, to understand what's your will with us and what you want us to know. And please send your Holy Spirit to prepare us and to help us and get to know you more and more and draw near to you. Please be with each member of the panel today as we share and with every listener. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that prayer, Nick. In our study today, our attention is drawn to the process of seed sowing, seed propagation, and awaiting the harvest, applying it especially to our spiritual lives. Joe, I wonder if you could read John chapter 12, verses 24, and um, perhaps add your comments? Certainly. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I think I've gone over a little bit extra, but just to add a little context to this verse, 
This happened shortly after Lazarus was resurrected by Jesus, and the news of this miracle had spread right across very quickly, and his Jesus's popularity just soared. And, you know, people were wanting to meet him and see him, and a group of Greeks came over and said, look, may we see Jesus? And, of course, Jesus, when he heard that, said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, just very briefly, this would have been music, as we know, to these disciples' ears. They would have thought, ha-ha, this is the time that the Roman yoke will be thrown off and we will enter into a greater, you know, period of Israel greatness. But then Jesus quickly goes on to say, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In this passage, Jesus is talking about himself. He is the seed, the seed of the woman, which must die and thereby be glorified, not in the eyes of men, because they, you know, he wasn't a general that would vanquish the Roman Empire, but he was glorified in the eyes of God. Jesus would die, and this would result in much fruit, much more seed, which in turn, if planted, would in turn produce another bigger harvest. There is much that we do not understand about seeds, um, how a seed to all appearances appears dead, is in fact dormant, and can remain in this suspended state for up to thousands of years in some cases, but then under the right conditions can sprout. Old seed that has been given new life, which if it goes on to mature, brings on much more like itself. The seed, some describe it as, has died and it is um, no longer exists in its original form, but has gone on to become something new. You know, over the years, I've accumulated packets and packets of seeds. I'm sure most of our sheds have got boxes of, of seeds of various flowers and veggies, some bought, some saved, and I know that all these jars are bursting with potential. They're sitting on a shelf in the cupboard, and if I were to plant them, it would unleash a riot of colour, of fragrance, of food and joy to myself and others. And I believe this passage that we've just read is symbolic of the Christian life, how the seed, which contains the fullest potential of life, ceases, ceases to be a seed, so the plant inside might live, and this leads to life and life more abundant. I hope that wasn't too verbose. That was very well stated. Thank you. And it's true. The principle of the seed dying in order to produce new life, uh, especially as it points to Jesus and, of course, uh, our own self-sacrificial lives in order to bring gain to the Lord's work, Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful picture indeed. Perhaps we could uh, just turn our attention on the extreme submission that Christ has uh, left for us. Len, would you like to comment on that? Yes, I, I want to give a little bit of a preliminary before I answer the question. One day, Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he said to them, who do people say I am? they gave the reply, some said, maybe you're Elijah or maybe you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked Peter a very direct, or he asked the disciples a very direct question. And he said, who do you say I am? And Peter answered up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Now, I include that because some people regard Jesus as a very capable and worthy teacher. But Jesus was much more than that because he pre-existed before he came to this earth. He lived in heaven with God the Father. And because of the fall of man and sin coming into the world, it was um, he took on the responsibility of saving mankind. So he left all his glory behind and he came down to this earth. It was like, I suppose, for somebody uh, saying, well, I want to save all the worms. So I will become a worm in order to teach them how to be saved. That might be a parallel. Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe the difference was great, much greater than that. So Jesus gave up his place of glory in heaven to come down to this earth in order to save us. Now that in itself was a mighty act. But it didn't stop there. Now I'm going to read to you from the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul, chapter 2, and verses 5 to 9. And he writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So Jesus gave up his position in heaven, his equality with God the Father, came to this earth and limited himself as a human being. He didn't come as some bright and glorious angel because it would be hard for ordinary people to relate to an angel but they can relate to another human being as Jesus was now <clears throat> what happened Jesus gave up a lot but when he came to this earth and he achieved what he was going to achieve it was necessary for him to die and I know that in Christianity this is focused on very much in, in the Christian churches. Christ died for us in order to save us from our sins. But there was something else that's often forgotten. He resurrected. And the analogy of a seed, which when going to the earth, even um, like Joe was saying, she might have seeds on her shelves in various rooms of the house or the shed, and one of the things that hasn't happened to that seed, it has to fall. It has to go down and it has to go onto the ground. And Jesus came down to this earth from heaven. That was step one. 
And then he was actually buried in the earth. If you read the story of the crucifixion, that Jesus was placed in a tomb. He was under the surface of the earth. But then he rose again. And he rose again to glory. And the fact is that if Jesus never rose from the dead, anybody who's believed in him would never, ever have eternal life. But when he rose again, it was the guarantee that people who uh, accepted him, accepted the salvation and forgiveness that he offered, would also rise. So from this one seed, if you like, comes a mighty harvest, a harvest of believers who are promised eternal life. And so the analogy of the seed applies very much to Christ. It also applies to us because unless we put aside all those worldly, earthly things and take up a new life which is given through Christ, we won't uh, be able to receive eternal life. The Apostle Paul says, I die daily. In other words, he submits himself to the, the will of the Lord every day. And that was very extensive explanation of uh, the role of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to put a little bit um, a, a different angle also there. I want to mention that um, we are all, as Christians, called to be servants, to be disciples. And those people, even who don't know God, they may experience in their life what that means to follow someone, to be uh, an apprentice, for example. I would like to say here that we live in a time in this world where human rights or my right, it's so highly kind of um, put up there and from every angle we want to protect that right. Now, in this case, Jesus himself had the right to say no, even not to come down on this earth. But he put aside that right, and we are invited also sometime to be able, to be able to be a servant of the Almighty God, to put aside some of those rights and to be able to reach out to people because that's what Jesus demonstrated. Now, I'm not saying that we should not stand for our rights, but there will be times when we need to choose what to do. Are we protecting ourselves only or are we willing to give up some of those rights in order to minister to other people or to to show the love of God around us? That's a very appropriate question, Nick. And um, the thought struck me that for the promised seed, that's Jesus, to die in order to produce a great harvest, as Joe has spoken about, is a profound thought indeed. And as the this dying thing applies to us, it has been stated that dying to self must come 
before we can adequately understand the will of God for our lives mm. or even the path that God has for us. I wonder, panel, if you'd like to expand on this one for us. Well, dying to self uh, sounds to, you know, to the average listener would sound rather morbid, a bit morbid, but it really is a dying of our selfish selfish self-centered selves you know where we think of ourselves um and instead of others instead um it's much easier for me to think of myself and be selfish i cannot generate unselfishness and um generosity of my own self this is something that only god can do for me and so if i allow god to regenerate to to change me i'll, I'll read romans 12 1 to 2 And here Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This text is saying that, When we come to Jesus and we offer ourselves to live for him, he will transform us and renew us and we will live out and prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Without him, you know, people might say, well, you you know, you need to sacrifice yourself first and then God can renew you. Even the desire to come to God comes from God. And so the whole, the whole process is overseen by God. And so, you know, all we need to do is to yield ourselves to God and say, here am I, use me, change me. And so it says here, do not be conformed and how easily we conform to this world, but be transformed. And I praise God that God can and has the power to transform our minds and our wills so that we are good and acceptable in his sight. Yes, Joe, You've just mentioned the word transform several times. And I was thinking about the life cycle of a butterfly. It starts off as an egg, as most people would know, and then it turns into a caterpillar, and then it turns into a pupa, and then it turns into an adult. And each one is different than the previous. The pupa doesn't look like the uh, caterpillar. Uh, everything is, is different. And I suppose this is a bit like the life of a person who goes from being a worldly, self-interested person and becomes a Christian. They are of the same biological material but they can become a different person, transformed. It is if the old self has been died or just disappeared and we have a new being. Uh, the uh, Apostle Paul talks about become a new creature or a new creation. And that's what this dying business is all about that we're talking about today. It's not only how the Lord Jesus forsook or or gave up his position in heaven to save us, but it's also what happens in the human being. 
we die to the old self and become a new creation. Lynn, I I think that's a fantastic analogy. That's a, a beautiful picture. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, there's a, a very interesting uh, text that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Of course, uh, God doesn't want us to stay in that condition, but that's the fact uh, in our own human nature, which is fallen and sinful. We tend to focus most of all on self and what's good for me mm. rather than to focus on God and others and what's good for them. And so, you know, we may have plans and ambitions and desires that uh, in and of themselves may be okay, but but could stand in the way of making God first. So if they are or become more important than our relationship with God and the time we spend with him in study and service and in praise, then essentially we have to give them up. So in a practical sense, if say, say we have an association with a person or an organization that we really like, you know, or it may, may be a, a, a long cherished desire. We have to ask ourselves, is this or is what I am doing in harmony with God's will? That's the question we have to ask ourselves every time. And if it's not, then as painful as it may be, we have to cut loose, sacrifice and, uh, you know, give it away. And that can be painful, but it's worth it. And if we do that, then, then, um, I think God brings us back to where, from where we are to where he wants us to be. I think that was, uh, very interesting, Jerry, what, uh, yeah, you said there and Len. And I want to just very briefly, um, come back again to the point I made a bit earlier that, um, we need to give up some of the rights. And I'll just explain, you know, we don't encourage misbehavior. We don't encourage, for example, uh, people to be bullied or um, those things. But Jesus himself said that I was bullied. I was mistreated. I was persecuted. Then you will be if you follow me, which means sometime we need intentionally to give up on those things. And if we are bullied, to come before God, you know, and sometimes to even accept that thing. That's what I was trying to say a bit early, because otherwise we can fall into that temptation of, of just protecting our rights and not being able to shine like Jesus shine on this world. Certainly. You know, I was thinking that uh, the seeds that we sow in the hearts of our little children seeds of truth and righteousness. Sometimes, as Joe has said, it takes a long, long time before those seeds sprout. You know, the Bible says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, (laughs) when he is old, he will not depart from it. I think sometimes we have to wait for a long time for the seed to bear fruit. But God at his own time will grant that, uh, and by circumstances, will grant that those little, uh, those little lives produce fruit for his glory. You know, a question 
the question we may ask ourselves, have we ever heard the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, but ignored it? And then when things go wrong, it inevitably leads to us regretfully asking, why didn't I listen? You know, it's like a seed that is sown and falls on hard ground and does not through the Holy Spirit get the opportunity to grow within within us to fruits of righteousness. But in contrast, the scriptures record the story of the early beginnings of a young prophet, a prophet of God, who heard the voice of God and sought immediately to listen. And it's the story of Samuel. Uh, Can you sketch the circumstances for us, Joe? Yes, well, Samuel was brought to the temple as a as uh, as Hannah, his mother, had promised that if she were to have a child, she would dedicate him to God. And as soon as he was weaned, she brought him to the temple. She must have shuddered because the sanctuary was run by Eli and, among others, and um, his sons. I think Eli was the high priest at the time, and his two sons were just sons of Belial. The Bible says that they were just worthless, corrupt. They just everything that they did was in opposition to God. They did much to bring um, God's purposes and His services into disrepute. So much so that even the people would come to Eli and complain about his sons, and that he they would be leading others into sin. The Bible goes into quite some detail as to the extent of it, and God had tried to warn Eli. He had sent him a man, uh, he sent him a prophet who warned him of terrible things to come if he didn't didn't correct the situation. But here we have little Samuel growing like a sprout, like a beautiful green plant in this in this mire of corruption and sin. And you mentioned that he listened. You know, we have the example of Eli who also did not listen. He heard, but he did not act on it. On one occasion, we the Bible tells us he did speak to his sons. He mildly chastened them and complained and whinged about how bad they were, but he didn't actually do anything about it. And so we have um, Samuel who was listening and who listened and he loved the Lord. Now we know that the story ends rather badly for Eli and his sons because they do perish. And it brings to mind a text um, that is found in James, I believe it is, for it is not those who hear the Lord who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So here we have a contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. And we know that Eli's sons and Eli perished. And Samuel went on to do great things. He was a, a prophet. He was a leader and a judge. He loved God and obeyed God without question. True, um, Joe, absolutely true. Preacher Star- Charles Stanley describes how essential it is to cultivate openness to God's voice in what he calls shifting into neutral. He says the Holy Spirit does not speak for the sake of merely passing along information. 
he speaks to get a response. And he knows when our agenda is such a large slice of our attention that it is a waste of time to suggest anything to the contrary. When that is the case, he, the Holy Spirit, is often silent. He waits for us to become neutral enough to hear and eventually obey. Pamela, what do you think Charles Stanley means by becoming neutral enough? When you think about your openness to God, what things you often prevent you from being neutral enough to hear and eventually obey? Or what do you need to do in, in your life to cultivate openness to God's voice and a decisiveness to be obedient to his direction? I'm asking, is this like planting seeds in highly acidic or highly alkaline soils when it critically needs a neutral pH reading? What do you think, uh, Pamela? I think sometimes, uh, Will, we, we have a tendency to say, well, I can handle this. I know what I'm doing. And uh, often you need to uh, be confronted with your limitations which in itself can be a very painful experience until you come to the point where you have to admit, no, actually, I can't handle this. I need help. And, um, you know, you reach a point where you have to put the brakes on, as it were, and um, admit that you need you need God's help. And that, that can be, a, for, for a lot of us, a painful journey to come to that realisation especially when you've lived a life where you think you've been in control all the time and uh, and then you see it all falling apart and uh, something has to change. I think Charles Stanley probably used a motoring analogy here. When you are driving the car forward or backward or whichever way, no, you can't really go sideways, that you're driving and I think he was referring to have the gears in neutral so that you are compliant enough to do the will of God. Now, um, there's a very uh, interesting analogy which is given by another preacher about when he was on a journey to the holy city, the promised city, and he was driving along and a truck loaded with hay with a pitchfork stuck in the back, a, a semi came along and he drove into the ditch. And then somebody bobbed up and said, would you like me to drive? And he was referring to Jesus. And when Jesus was driving the car to the holy city, everything went all right. And he thought, well, there's no problem now. The semi-truck, the semi's loaded with hay. They're not causing it. Can I drive again? Yes, of course you can, says Jesus. So they're driving along and, of course, the next truck comes along and runs him into the ditch. I think what Charles Stanley is getting at is to allow the Lord to have his will uh, operate in our lives. When that happens, our lives are productive and good. 
When we drive, sometimes we might drive in the wrong direction. And that's where I think this analogy has meaning for me, that I am willing and able to allow the Lord to lead rather than me to lead, because my will might be uh, not, not good. I think that the word neutral, being in neutral has mm, less than ideal sort of sense in my mind. I feel that it has a, a, a an aspect of apathy, and I don't think God wants us to be neutral or apathetic or not thinking because it implies that I could easily be, when a car's in neutral, can be pushed forward or backward without much resistance. And so, um, I, but to me, the question was, what do you need to, what do you need in your life to cultivate openness? And I feel that in this busy age, if only we would declutter our lives from the busyness, the clamor, the, the, we're bombarded with all sorts of devices that we really cannot even hear God's voice or even have a moment to think about God at times. We are so busy. So I think the, one of the biggest hindrances in our spiritual walk is simply the amount of information that we are called upon to process and to either accept or reject. Even just walking through a, a supermarket. There are millions of decisions happening, and so I think that that is one aspect. Although I understand what he means by neutral, and that is that we're not against God and that we need to maybe, un, you know, maybe that's what he means, declutter our minds. Yeah, I agree. Nick? Yeah, I just want to add on, on that, uh, and I believe that being neutral also is when we are not always under the influence of whatever happens around us. We could be under the influence of people. We could be uh, under the influence of even our own desires and our own ambitions and all those things. But to be neutral means to detach yourself, to be able to really hear the voice of the Lord and the will of God in your life and what you need to do. It's almost like, you know, when we pray many times, we just saying things there. Very rarely, you know, we, we become neutral there to allow God to guide us and direct us even into the prayer or even into the things which, which we desire. That's how I understand also to, to be uh, neutral, uh, to allow God to step in and direct life. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me last night, he said it would be really good if God would step in and reveal his will so I know which way to go. But um, we actually have a record of God's will Mm. in in the Holy Scriptures. And so if we want to know God's will, we need to read the Scriptures and then we need to act on what we read. Yes. And um, I've I've thought about this a number of times to allow God's will to work in my life. Would he like me to do this? Would he like me to do that? Well, sometimes we don't have the specifics of any decision that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. But we have the guidelines. 
whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are holy, whatever things are of good report. Think on these things and not only think on them, but act on them. Mm-hmm. So there are many guidelines in the Bible to what God's will is. And one of those things, of course, is to be obedient. And I think too, Len, if I could just add to that, um, if if something is morally and ethically justifiable, then um, I think we can uh, almost uh, safely assume that we can go ahead. Uh, but if it's still not God's will, then God will either close the door or open the door. But you have to be alert to God's leading as well, don't you? Um, you have to lay it before the Lord and say every time, is is this what you want me to do, Lord? And then wait and be, be on the alert, as it were, for God's providential leading. I mean, God wants you to ask him these things and lay it before him and trust that he will answer you. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. So it's an invitation to present your desires and wishes and lay them before him. And and you have to have the faith, I think, to to believe that God will respond to your, you know, to whatever it is you're, you're presenting to him. You said something very interesting, Jerry. It's possible to even want to follow a path that is morally right but might not be God's will. You know, self-reliance. We, us deciding for ourselves what is right and what is wrong is, um, is a very dangerous path sometimes. And perhaps two good examples of the dangers of self-reliance are Eve and King Saul. When Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't simply because she doubted God's word. At the heart of the problem was her belief that she had enough wisdom herself to decide what was good and right. She trusted our own judgment. You know, when we rely on our own judgment, as opposed to trusting God's word, we open ourselves to all sorts of problems. A little statement from the book Steps to Christ, one of my favorites, says, Adam and Eve persuaded themselves that so small a matter as eating of the forbidden fruit couldn't result in such terrible consequences as God had declared. But this small matter was the transgression of God's immutable and holy law, and it separated man from God and opened the floodgates of death and untold woe upon the world. You know, such were the results, especially with uh, the sad history of King Saul. Len, would you like to sketch for us the situation with regard to Saul, the king? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. We've just been talking about allowing God's will to be done in our lives. And I was thinking about this seed analogy that we've been um, discussing today. And the thought is, before I talk about Saul, what happens when a seed decides to plant itself? (laughs) If it's not deliberately uh, put in the soil, what happens? It might fall on the concrete and somebody might step on it and squash it. 
or it may not produce anything. So <laughs> I know seeds don't usually plant themselves, but in this analogy, I think Saul was a bit like a seed that tried to plant itself and it didn't work very well. You see, Saul was the first king of Israel. In the beginning, he seemed to be um, a humble man. Uh, he was a humble man. In fact, he was quite shy. Although he was tall, he was shy, and eventually he was crowned as king. And uh, things went all right for a while. But it's a bit like this. When somebody does something, for example, um, if somebody pays me a compliment for something I've done and said, oh, uh, you must be a good gardener, your gardener looks beautiful. Now, I can uh, accept that person's uh, uh, compliment gracefully and say, thank you very much. Or if this sort of thing keeps happening, it might go to my head and I'm beginning to think of myself better than what I really am. Well, this is what actually happened with Saul. Now, we have an incident where some of the Israelites attacked the neighbouring nations, the Philistines, and the Philistines didn't like it. They usually don't like it when they get attacked. And so the Philistines started to build up an army to go and attack the Israelites in a, a much bigger way. Now, it seems that back then, before war, the prophet Samuel would come and offer burnt sacrifices to the Lord, perhaps to ask for victory. It was called a peace offering, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And so this, before the battle should take place, the prophet Samuel was to come along and offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Well, the Israelites were building up their army and the Philistines were building up their army and the Israelites got scared with cold feet. And some of them started to, um, what's the word when a soldier... Uh, leaves the army, there's a special term, I can't think of it. Deserted. Deserts, that's the one. Thank you, Nick. Uh, and the, um, some of the men from Saul's army started to desert. Well, Samuel hadn't arrived, so Saul took matters into his own hands and he offered a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, that was only to be done by the priests, and um, eventually Samuel came along and the burnt offering had just been done by Saul, and Samuel said, what have you done? And uh, Saul replied, well, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. In other words, he felt that the Lord wouldn't protect him. What he did was very presumptive. He wasn't to do that. He relied on his own situation in order to do something that he shouldn't have. 
And this, of course, carries over to us and the decisions that we make. We know, if we know what is right and what is wrong, the circumstances should never get us to vary from that path of right. Sometimes people use the circumstances to do that which is not really acceptable. But if you know it's um, wrong to do something, and because of the circumstances you decide, well, it's okay to do what is wrong because circumstances demand it, that's actually not good enough. And it wasn't good enough with Saul. And Samuel, speaking on behalf of the Lord, said, your kingdom is finished. There will be another king taking over. Saul was actually king over Israel for 40 years, but because he took too much on himself, he overstepped the mark. He was rejected by God. Len and panel and, and listener, that's a very interesting story. Actually, it's worth it to go in the... Uh, book of um, you know first and Samuel for example in verse uh, in chapter 13 and read in particular about this what I like to just draw our attention to is that Saul knew and was instructed to do the things in the right way and uh, Samuel he was actually the voice of the Lord as God may uh, want to talk to you today now the Lord God sometimes can delay things, but he will never miss the appointment. You know, I mean, like, uh, I mean, he will, he will come to fulfill what he have said. In this case, uh, Samuel, it's, it's delayed. And then Saul take the matter in his hands. He rely on himself because he was the king. He could do anything. And what I like to compare here, it's almost like with the, our first parents, the sin in heaven, and particularly what Eve experienced. You know, Saul said, I saw, I saw the multitudes of people, you know, the army. And of course, that triggered some uh, uh, unrest in his mind. Then he said, I said to myself, I have to do something here. He was not relying on God, you see. I have to do something here. Then he went even further and he said, I felt, you know, he went under his, um, you know, feelings. Mm-hmm. I felt that I could go and do the role of God or what Samuel was supposed to do. This is the danger in which we can fall very easily in our experience with God. And in our experience with one another, because we can take matter in our hands rather than wait patiently for the Lord. I pray that we'll be guided not to self-rely on, on our abilities, but to allow God to guide us in all things. Yes. Now, I've thought of only Saul had fallen the rock, fallen on the rock. The Lord, instead of falling on his sword, perhaps fallen on his knees and prayed in humility. Who knows what might have happened? Galatians 6 verse 8 says, What a person plants, he 
he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, or ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. And he'll show for his life, all he'll show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. That's the message paraphrase of Galatians 6 verse 8. You know, in contrast to those who have missed the opportunity to develop to the fullest potential for God, we have an amazing promise that I feel that we should share. Jerry, do you want to share that one for us? Yes. He who loves Christ the most will do the greatest amount of good. There is no limit to the usefulness of one who, putting self aside, makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart and lives a life wholly consecrated to God. If men will endure the necessary discipline without complaining or fainting by the way, God will teach them hour by hour and day by day. He longs to reveal his grace. If his people will remove the obstructions, he will pour forth the waters of salvation in abundant streams through the human channels. Complete submission to God's will is at the heart of a Christian life. Therefore, God may allow crucibles to teach us dependence on him. Nature itself has taught us that real development and growth can come when God turns up the heat through fiery trial and crucibles, uh, those crucibles we often prefer to uh, avoid. It was only upon arrival in Australia that I realized that there are some plants that benefit from fire for growth and propagation. And who better to explain this than uh, a born Australian, Len? Tell us about it. Well, these plants are called pyrophytic plants, and they will only germinate when the uh, seed pod has been damaged by fire. Now, uh, such plants are eucalypts. Here in the Adelaide Hills, not far from where we live, there was a very bad fire a few years ago called the Samson Flat Fire that burned out thousands of acres of of uh, bushland. And if you go up there now, um, there are new trees. The old trees have sprouted and there are new trees because the seed pods that fell to the ground and the gum nuts and so on, they have re-sprouted. And this, this is um, similar to what happens with some people. They will only flourish and grow when subject to what uh, you said a little while ago before of fiery trials, of great difficulties. When things are going smoothly, you don't notice much difference. So this seed analogy applies very much to people. It certainly does, Lynn. And I can speak for some South African plants uh, which have, on the other hand, developed a thermal insulation to be largely unaffected by uh, heat and fire. Plants like the aloe and the protea, perhaps we too 
uh, could pre- prefer to insulate ourselves from a crucible or crucible circumstances, the very circumstances which the Lord wants us to grow in. You know, God's promise to Noah after the flood was that as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest will never cease. So we know that sowing and reaping will continue until the Lord comes with a sickle to reap the harvest, spiritually speaking, already white and ready. But as for mankind's preparation for the future, let me share something about a seed vault that I read about. Tunneled into a mountain in the frozen environment on the island of Spitsbergen, 2,000 kilometers north of Oslo and well above the Arctic Circle, Norway has built the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Far away from the rest of civilization, this cavernous facility uh, penetrates the mountain for the sole purpose of serving as a comprehensive storage facility for seeds. There they are preserving duplicates of seeds of economically important strains of plants from all over the world. This is to protect against the threat of a global catastrophe, such as nuclear war, disease, and widespread natural disasters brought about by global warming. The vault stores seeds in a controlled environment and has the potential to house some 4.5 million seed samples. Every country around the world applauds this endeavor, and some countries have already had access to the storage vault to revive species following a local emergency. In contrast, though, the seeds of truth are to be freely disseminated, distributed far and wide throughout the world. In order for spiritual germination to take place in the heart of every human on earth, we are never to keep it stored away, forgotten or under wraps. The Holy Spirit encourages and empowers every effort to share these life-saving agencies, seeds, with every nation on earth, every nation, tongue and people, as the Bible puts it. And every one of us can participate in growing the kingdom of God, in preparation for the coming of the Lord. So much has still to be done, as we know, panel and listener, before we can become effective disseminators of the gospel, the gospel seed and truth. We need to die to our own self-centeredness and make ourselves unreservedly available to God. Perhaps God will then help us to be effective sowers of the seeds of righteousness, seeds that will produce a great harvest for his glory. And I think that our part of our prayer today should be for every one of us to be effective seed sowers and allow the seed to germinate in our own hearts as well by submission to God's will. And I think this is probably a good topic for a prayer And, Jerry, I want to ask you to offer that prayer for us and for everyone. Our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend together in the study of your word and to meditate on the 
importance of uh, dying to self and living for Christ. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Lord, we just pray that um, we will have the desire and the the courage to live that life, to surrender all. It's a beautiful hymn that says, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Help us to come to that realization. Help us to die to self and live for you, that we can love you more and serve you better. So, Lord, until we meet again, we pray that uh, you will bless us, bless the listeners for choosing to spend the time with us. And we just pray that uh, until we meet again, your loving arms will be firmly around us because we ask it with thanksgiving in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for your participation today. This was a very interesting study, and I hope that we all realize that as a seed, dying as a seed, will germinate and bring much fruit. We are coming to a close of this series of um, In the Crucible with Christ, and our next study will be an amazing study, culminating with Christ in the crucible. I hope you'll join us uh, next time. Until then, may God richly bless you and uh, walk in his footsteps.